What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at TalkLouder underscore podcast, and our website, TalkLouderPodcast.com, where you can find links to all of our previous episodes. I'm Metal Dave, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And, uh, man, we, we, we really got a good one today. Uh, we have guitarist Mark Younger-Smith on the Talk Louder podcast today. Uh, Mark uh, has, has deep roots in Texas, but is probably best known worldwide as uh, one of the guitar players for Billy Idol. He spent seven years with Billy Idol uh, between the Charmed Life and Cyberpunk records. And he's done a ton of stuff before and after that which he's going to share with us today. And man, I, I've met him once before. He's got a brand new band called the broken things. And, uh, I actually met him at the end of one of their rehearsals here in South Austin. They were doing some dates opening up for the cult. So they were rehearsing. And, um, ah, I know the singer of that band, Lance Austin, as do you, Jason. And so I went out to the rehearsal to say hello to Lance and have Tommy price, the drummer for The Broken Things, um, autograph a Billy Idol album for me. Yes, I was fanboying. That's and, fine. Uh, that's where I met Mark. And uh, But all we really did was say hello and get to know each other a little bit. I've never had any kind of conversation with him until today. And man. <laughs> yeah, he's cool. I felt like uh, I opened a rock and roll history book. Yeah, he's, I used to run into him all the time. This would have been in the, in the late 80s and, and then in the 90s and stuff. Um, and the last conversation I had with him, he was telling me about a, a manor, like a big house that he bought in Smithville, which is right down the road from where I'm at now. And, uh, he's not there anymore. He's, uh, he's still in central Texas, but he lived in new Orleans for a little while. He's, he's been all over the place, but, um, he's, He's a Texas guy, and I love it that he's a Texas guy. But, yeah, I used to run into him all the time, and it was like, hey, what's up? What's going on? Da, da, da. But, uh, you know, we weren't really close, but kind of followed each other's uh, stuff from afar. Yeah. And um, it was I learned a lot, uh, needless to say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, knew, knew that he was during the time of his kind of in and out of when I would run into him. It was basically around uh the uh the arc the austin rehearsal complex yeah and uh that you know that was kind of a hub and we've talked about that sort of hollow ground the arc for you know a lot of our episodes we talk about that and we we even mentioned wayne nagel again today because we fucking had to because uh mark used to play with charlie sexton um, and when they were children, basically, yeah. and then they were on tour together, you know, right as Charlie's career was about to take off. And he tells a story. I mean, he's been in the same room with all these bad motherfuckers. David Bowie is mentioned in this episode. There's all this cool shit going on. And, uh, I, I'm really happy that, uh, that you ran into Mark because, uh, um, I haven't run into him in years. So it was cool to hang with him via uh online space right yeah i got i got to give a shout to matt medlin uh who's who actually put me in touch with mark matt um uh, uh works with uh tommy price who mm -hmm. we've had on the show before tommy of course the drummer for billy idol 
Joan Jett scandal and so many others. Um, but who, Matt, who is in the broken things with Mark? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, it kind of comes full circle. Yeah. Um, uh, so a, a big shout to Matt. Thank you so much for connecting us because it was a really great conversation with Mark. I'm going to throw two little uh, teasers out there. One, we get a great story about how Mark Younger Smith got his name. This I did not know, and it's a great story. And two, I promise you're going to hear the wildest Billy Idol story you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> yeah, don't try this at home. Yeah. <laughs> you just want to make sure it it's not condoned here on the Talk Louder podcast, which you're Never about said to hear. I condoned it. I just but, said you're going to hear some crazy but it, it's a it's a whopper. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Yeah, yeah it's a whopper. Yeah. Uh, it it has to do with the Hells Angels. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not do, the best part. <laughs> no, it's not. Has to do with the bass player from Ozzy Osbourne, one, one of the many. I can an amp that caught a fire. Saying. There's yeah. Let's don't blow it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a lot of cool cool stuff in this episode. Uh, Mark Youngersmith on the Talk Louder podcast. <laughs> We, we should start with, um, let's start with the present. You're, uh, you, we've got a lot of history to cover with you, but uh, let's jump right in with the, the new band, The Broken Things. Um, you're, you're out, you, you, that's your current project. You've got uh, Tommy Price on drums. Tommy, we've had on the, on the Talk Louder podcast. Tommy, of course, uh, played with Billy Idol, Joan Jett, Scandal. He did some work with Michael Monroe, Roger Daltrey. Uh, obviously a, a great uh, drummer and your vocalist is Lance Austin, a friend of ours that uh, I remember from Southbound Saints, who I think you were doing some production work with. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. At one time. I was producing their band and, and uh, it's kind of weird because I was producing the band. It was brought to me. The band was brought to me. Uh, uh, and I said, well, let me listen to what they got so far. And then I went and saw them live. And then I sat down with Lance and talked to him for a long time. And I went, okay, I think we can do this. And we were doing the songs that they wrote. And I and as I was recording them, I kept trying to, you know, one of the things I do as a producer is push the singer to try and find out what their boundaries are. Mm -hmm. And and he has he didn't have the, the, the boundaries I thought he would have. I, I, the way they were presenting themselves, it, it was kind of like, you know, a kind of a, higher register rock act with with some screaming and things of that nature pretty high powered type of type of unit and i kept telling him i said well when you're talking uh you've talked to him in person his voice yeah. he, he could be a, a television personality he's got this really great voice that just cuts through everything when he's talking and i said have you ever sung down in those registers down there you know to where where you you know, you that's where you normally talk. You were saying they didn't want to do that on that record on those projects. So I asked him, I said, Hey, I got this song that sounds like Iggy Pop, but I don't want it to sound like Iggy Pop. But if I could find Iggy Pop, I would let him do it. But so he came over and we put him in that register, and it was magic to me. I thought, Wow, okay, this is where you should be singing is that kind of more croony, lower register stuff and so we ended up doing a whole record and i was really happy with it and uh and so now actually our first single is going to come out september i think he just texted me september the september the second or third 
I think yeah, this, this is the the broken things, correct? Yeah, the broken things. Yeah, the first single is going to be called "Kill Me," which has nothing to do with being killed. It's you know, but <laughs> it's, it's it's about a girl actually who's just so awesome that you know any you, you might as well just kill me over it, you know. But uh, yeah, so yeah, that's going to come out. I'm really excited because you just sent me the artwork and everything, so that's coming out September the second. Yeah. So how did how did you awesome. guys come? How did you guys come together? Uh, obviously, uh, you were familiar with Lance through uh, producing Southbound Saints and. Uh, Tommy, of course, uh, played with Billy Idol, but not at the same time as you. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Well, I've known Tommy. Tommy didn't play on the record. Let's, first of all, I don't want to misconstrue that. Uh, I have a drummer named Scott Thomas, who's one of my favorite drummers of all time. He just happens to only do it as a hobby, which is really weird because wow. he's so amazing. And I played with some great drummers, but he did all the recordings. Scott Thomas did. But what happened was when these cult gigs came up that you came to the rehearsal for, yeah. um, Billy had called me and he asked me, hey, man, you want to do these shows with us in Texas? And I said, yeah, sure. The band's not quite ready. We don't have any product out, but but yeah, we'll go play live. We'd done a few things uh, with them, with some other groups before, but nothing you know on that level. And I thought, oh, this will be a great opportunity to put the band on a bigger stage and see what they're capable of. And so... Uh, my drummer Scott couldn't do it so I, the only person I could think of was Tommy and I've known him forever and he and his wife are really close friends of me and my wife um, and it's funny how I met him it's a long story I'll get into that in a minute but anyway to, to kind of cut it short I said hey you want to do these shows with us um, he recovered from cancer and was looking to get out and play and I thought oh this is a great opportunity he knows the guys in the cult uh, he and Tim Pesta are, are kind of fans of each other. And so it was a gun, little fun time. And the, and Lance uh, did a great job. He, it looked like he was born to be on a big stage. So, you know, from that standpoint, I was super happy, you know. And they were, too. Their, their, their production staff said, are you guys doing the rest of the tour? Yeah. <laughs> they, they had Black Motorcycle uh, playing yeah. with them. Black and Rebel Motorcycle Club. Black Rebel Motorcycle, yeah. yeah. And they had them playing with them, lined up for a bunch of other shows. And that's what I was talking about earlier about the Live Nation thing. It can get really political. And I guess they're signed to Live Nation as well. So when I was talking to Billy Duffy about it, he was like, well, you know, everybody wants you to come on and do the rest of the states, but Live Nation wants this other band. And, you know, I said, no, I, I don't want to get in the middle of that. You know, so yeah. we, it plus what they were paying, what, what Live Nation was paying. It was a losing money proposition to go on 25 dates across America, you know? So yeah. uh, I, at this point in my career, I'm not really up for that kind a of... Lot of... A lot of... Prob this, this is for our listeners, but a lot of people don't realize that Live Nation is like this, you know, entertainment manager mogul type guy that if you get in good with them that's great for your career because they can put you on in front of and with and rubbing elbows with huge stars the, the yeah. biggest the biggest and the, of the biggest of the biggest of the biggest but they're not going to pay you very much they can help break your record they can help break you as an artist but it yeah. could also break you yeah yeah oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah yeah so, yeah tour, the tour i was just talking about it would have you know it probably you're probably looking at a couple thousand dollar a show loss yeah to do that you know and you you multiply that times 25 shows and 
you know, okay, well, that's great. And we didn't have the product out to push. So, you know, yeah, we did great. We sold every bit of merchandise we had at, in San Antonio the first night. We were like, holy moly, we needed more T-shirts. <laughs> oh, that's great. Crazy. Man. You, need yeah, someone crazy. you need someone staying up all night with a in the printer in the garage and loading up a U-Haul and on their, on their way to the next on show. On their way. You know how it is, Jason. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. That, you know, we could, maybe if we'd have done it that way, but we just weren't prepared. So, you know, you, but well, that's then, still cool. That's still cool. A cool shot in the arm. Uh, oh, yeah. For and it was great and, for Lance. And oh, Lance, yeah. he, now he's got the bug. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I can I can handle a 3,000 seater or whatever. I mean, we played Aztec Theater in San Antonio. And yeah, I love that Pops place. And Blues in, in, yeah. uh, in Dallas. And yeah, we played those places. I would never played Aztec, but I played the House of Blues several times. But that was, I love that theater. That's great. That was yeah, it's a nice venue. Yeah. Uh, so you 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 did a couple gigs opening for the cult because of your friendship with Billy Duffy, and and you said you go way back. How did you first meet Duffy? Tell tell us how that friendship uh, formed. Oh, it's well, it's it's an it's kind of weird. I mean, he, he the the cult had opened for Billy Idol when I was with Idol. Mm -hmm just for a couple of shows and then they left the tour and then we got faith no more on the tour and then they they broke and they became massive and that was great for the charm life billy idol tour that we did um but i remained friends with duffy and we you know we were at that time both of us were kind of a little bit out there on drinking and drugging which is you know have since then become quite <laughs> quite unenamored with that lifestyle yeah. uh, and him too he's been sober for quite a long time so we just kind of maintained a really good friendship and and we talk a lot about sports and life and things like that i don't know what it is about our personalities they, they mesh really well and, and which is odd because a lot of people say that he's a, a cool kind of unfriendly person which i don't understand that at all but I've heard that from people. Oh, I've never tried. He, he wasn't friendly to me at all. I'm like, really? But no. And we've had uh, off and on different times. We've run into each other, even though for a good period of time, we both lived in Los Angeles and we would ride bikes and different things like that, ride motorcycles together. But since I moved away, we just maintained a really good friendship. There's a, there's a, I, I, uh, it's not about me, but the, you know, the toys toured, with the cult on Sonic Temple, yeah. we didn't meet him till like a week or two into, into the, the tour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like they were being, you know, ghost. They were ghosting us because yeah. uh, we had already heard that they handpicked us. They saw our video and they were like, "Oh, these guys are cool. We got to get these guys." And you know, um, and that was cool. Yeah. Uh, but, so but what was your reaction when you met him? When we finally, when we finally met uh, for Billy, yeah, I'll go to Billy since that's, uh, yeah, uh, he seemed a bit of a dark horse. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't expect. I mean, we were fanboys. We were like, oh my god, look at Billy! Wow, you know, we're like young, you know, rooter tutors, yeah. just running around. You know, I, I, I didn't want to embarrass myself and ask him for his fucking autograph. <laughs> Even though I think that I did, I think yeah. I have Sonic Temple autographed yeah. from that tour. Uh, you know, the opening band turns <laughs> turns into a signing session backstage. Um, a little embarrassing, but whatever. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, fast fast forward, I ended up 
riding riding on Ian's bus with him three nights a week. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it was because, and I, I don't mean to speak out of term, it's none of my business, but he may have been trying to not drink. Right. And uh, I'm, I've been sober, like, I can't even remember the last time I had a drink or anything. So he was, I think he liked that influence. Yeah. You know? And I was glad to, to occupy his time. Especially if that was during Sonic Temple, because yes. Billy, I think Billy was still drinking during Sonic Temple. Right. Right. Yeah. And right. so... so he, yeah, me and Ian, and Ian has some other things that he deals with. He, I mean, it's funny. I'm not close to Ian. Uh, okay. I'm super close to Billy. I mean, we just texted to each other. He's in England now. We just yeah. texted each other earlier today. We we talk probably four times a week. We're that amazing. Close. Back to Billy, you know, about the middle of that run, uh, you know. Uh, my guitar player Danny at the time comes on the bus and he goes, he goes check out what Billy Duffy just fucking gave me. I'm like, what? He's holding a blonde Les Paul. <laughs> I'm, like, right. I'm like, what? Nice, he, and yeah. he's like, yeah, Billy Duffy just gave me this Les Paul. Nice. And yeah. Ian gave me some leather pants and some jewelry, and I rode on his bus, and I was friends with his entourage, and they, his, him and his entourage, we went to Disney World together. Oh, I was wow. like, holy shit, <laughs> this is crazy. This is yeah. fucking nuts. That's great. I didn't know any yeah. of that. I'll have, yeah. But, you know. Oh, I have seen them. We, uh, I mean, we, he's actually looking into it right now with Live Nation about wanting that they want us to do. They're about to play New Orleans, Houston, and Austin because uh, they didn't do that on this last little little leg that we did with them. Yeah. We played San Antonio and Dallas, and, and at the beginning of the tour that was canceled because of COVID, uh, you, in two, I guess it was two years ago, we had started all those shows, and we yeah. were going to do them, and then it got canceled right in New Orleans. So so they're one, he wants us to pick those up, but like I said, because they did this thing with Live Nation, I don't know, we'll see, but yeah. I think if that it it's great. I think that it's great that you have been able to keep that friendship kindled for so long, ups and downs, and through your, yeah. your, your, uh, you know, oh, yeah. uh, uh, your new, your new, you know, uh, sober world. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that congratulations on that. Right. And, right. Yeah. He's that's a, a, he, that's a, well, that's Billy's a daily thing. For, that people yeah, don't, that's a daily so thing. He he's been really good and he's a helpful guy and all of that. Yeah. That's so great. For people, um, Mark, for people that don't know, uh, give us a little description, if you will, of what uh, the broken thing sounds like. How would you describe your sound? Well, it, we were talking earlier about uh, Lance, and I wanted him to kind of do the song. This one song that we ha I had written, it ended up being called Solo. It's on. It's actually the first song on the re record when the record finally comes out. Um, uh, it's not the first single. But it sounded very Iggy Pop, like not Stooges Iggy Pop, but like post Stooges. But he was still kind of punky, but more pop and kind of rock a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then people say that it sounds like that for sure. A lot of people have said that kind of. And then because of his register, a little Bauhausy. But then I'll, I'll have other people say it sounds like STP a little bit, and I'll be like, oh, that's pretty different and different i mean we're not trying to sound like any of that so um anybody familiar with how i write 
uh, like when I was writing with Charlie Sexton when we were teenagers, it was kind of modern approach to rock music. When I played with Billy, I tried to kind of go in the other direction because he had this flamethrower guitar player, Steve Stevens on guitar, and, and I was coming in to write another, a whole new record with him. So I kind of brought more of my Texas roots, and even though I'm not a blues guitar player, I'm a rock guitar player, but yeah. try more soul, soulful type playing to Billy's music. And then, lo and behold, the record after that was kind of techno. So it, it comes from a lot of different directions. This record has real, you know, we're not using machines or anything like that. It's just guys playing. Yeah. Uh, and we're focusing more on the energy and the song. So uh, that I'd kind of say that kind of Iggy Popish kind of in his solo career, that kind of thing. All sounds right. like sounds like you're you're kind of working with Lance's uh, sort of like uh, guttural darker tones. Yeah, and and I would I can imagine it. To be honest, for for you and listeners, I I haven't heard the Broken Things yet, and I I'm intrigued. I want to I want to check it out, and I want to hear Lance um, because that bellowing tone that you know Iggy and Bowie and yeah. you know that thing. That, I call that, it the that, Elvis. You know yeah, the Elvis. Yeah. The yeah. darker tone, the the glottal, the soft palate, where you're back and it's still yeah, yeah, yeah but but nasty and punk attitude yeah. on top of that. That's yeah. a that's a that's a thing. That's a yeah, like it is. That. And when people hear it, they're like, <laughs> I'll give you an example. When we the first time we played with the Cult, which was two years ago, uh, Duffy came out at soundcheck and he's like, "Now there's a man's voice." Wow, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like. Well, that's one way of putting it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, he's definitely got that big giant voice. I mean, I'm, for me, it's, I'm, I'm, I've worked with so many singers like that. I mean, Charlie Sexton had the big, huge voice when he was 15 years old, you know? So when we were teenagers, there was this guy next to me with this huge voice. And, you know, then I worked with Idol, who's got a big ass voice, you know, yeah. and, I worked with uh, Joe Cocker, who's got a big, huge, giant voice. And, you know, the I just, I think that kind of crooning style, uh, you know, I got to do some a little short stint with Tom Jones. He has a big voice. He's a yeah. crooner. So I kind of probably, that kind of kept with me when I looked for singers. I mean, I, I had a band before this band, when I first left Idol and I moved back to Texas, with this amazing singer named Aaron Barrera, who I thought, oh my God, this guy's voice sounded like Chris Cornell, I'm that kind of voice. Like, mm -hmm. like, oh my God, you can sing that. But now that I'm doing what I'm doing now, I kind of went, well, you know, that was great, but it didn't have that, that bigger than life thing that attached itself to the songs. You know, it was amazing singing. Believe me, don't get me wrong, the guy had an amazing voice. But there's something in me that likes that kind of a, a, a voice that, and it doesn't have to be male. I mean, it, it could be female too, you know, sure. it's a, a voice that just sits, I call it the big head when I'm producing music. I, I, when I'm listening to the music, I want, I want to imagine this gigantic head coming out of the speaker singing to me. That's and, good. You, you know, that's what I want to hear. I, I don't want to hear, you know, everything all blended together and you're like, you know, is, well, what? Okay. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, the guy's got a good voice. But, you know, I, I don't want that. I want to. I want that voice to swallow me whole. Tone. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm after. You know. So I could hear the the STP comment that someone made to you. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I get that now when I think about what it is that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. This sort oh, of bowl, yeah. bowl of tone, this bellowing thing. I, I can hear that in, in uh, that guy's voice, too. Yeah. yeah, and Lance has that. I mean, it, probably from when he was with Southbound Saints, that that group was that kind of thing. It was that kind of, you know, Stone Temple Pilots kind of, you know, hard edge rock, you know, power rock, but n without the beauty. The, the, none of the stuff I produced had that kind of Stone Temple Pilots beautiful side, you know, uh, that they were capable of doing. So when we do that kind of stuff with the with my new band with Lance, it's the soft stuff is really dark and moody and and you hear this big huge baritone voice over it uh and then we have some other stuff that he sings that probably is what people say stp because it's kind of you know his range goes up he's screaming a bit and things like that but mm -hmm. yeah, yeah I mean, it, like i said september the first single come out that's kind of a it's a good overall mix of what we're doing on the first awesome single. and what what's the single call kill me kill me that's right kill me yeah, kill me. It's gonna be. Uh, it's it's gonna be out September second. That's what I'm told. Lance just called me and told me that. So it'll be on all those platforms. So ev everyone should write it down. Broken things kill me. Yes. September mm -hmm. second. Yes. Early September. You mentioned uh, Charlie Sexton and uh, you know us being Texas guys. Uh, we're we're very familiar with Charlie. We probably all have a Charlie story. But uh, yeah. <laughs> for our listeners who aren't familiar with Charlie. Uh, just briefly, uh, he, he, he basically, he was born in San Antonio, kind of made his name in Austin, I guess, and then was signed to a major label, had a video on MTV for a song called Beat So Lonely, and was kind of being groomed to be sort of this pinup heartthrob kind of yeah. guy. And, and he definitely had the looks for it. Um, the guy's just got, you know, genetics, like, talk about kill me man it's crazy yeah oh, yeah yeah i showed you a picture earlier yeah it's yeah. crazy yeah. and yeah. he had the big perfect hair and yeah, everything that was you know the early 80s big giant bouffants with the long black hair his cheekbones you know oh my you know he looked kind of like matt Dillon, but he yeah. was 15 yeah 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 <laughs> yeah so and then and then in later year i mean uh, he he was sort of being groomed to be sort of this pop star, but it, but he was really kind of a, a a real rock blues guitarist and a really talented dude. Big time. Yeah. Well, by and, the way, I want to I want to interrupt just say we had Wayne Nagel on this show. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah, we, yeah. we talked to he this this sort of era that we're kind of focused yeah. on right now with the Charlie and and Mark world. Yeah. yeah early uh, yeah. yeah. He was there, huh? Oh, yeah. Wayne, yeah, Wayne, Wayne was standing right yeah, next to you. He, he saved, I have this famous story that everybody should know about. Wayne saved my life. Well, oh, yeah. tell us. Yeah, while we were on tour, he was a road manager, and it was rugged, man. They, MCA was pushing us hard because they wanted Charlie to be a big star. And we had done Japan where Charlie was just massive. I mean, it was like being the Beatles or something. You get off the airplane screaming Japanese girls everywhere. And it was nuts. Sorry, my my no, you're good. cat wants to jump up in my lap. That's We've had plenty of cats guests on this we show. Like, we oh, I have a house full of cats. Yeah, we are so, a pet friendly show. Come on, come on. All right, you want to come up anyway? So it was rugged, and, and him being young, um, there was two guys. I was I was like three years older than Charlie. He was 15. I was like 18 or 19, something like that. Wow. And he was signed, and they were pushing him hard. I mean, they wanted him, like you said, to be the next teen beat, you know, huge star. 
and they were grooming. He was in every magazine, every cover of everything on MTV, left and right, being set up on dates with movie stars and the whole thing, you know. And uh, and so on the tour, he they would take him off to do interviews. Uh, he was just basically, you know, he'd do a show and gone to do interviews or go do this or go do that. Plus, he was too young to be going out. And the old guys would tell the pros that were hired, they'd go off. And I would be kind of left um, to my own devices at 19, 18, 19 years old. Damn and I would get in a lot of trouble. Damn it. And, and yeah, and, and so we're, I don't, we'd done a bunch of the states and a bunch of uh, Asia and Europe and back in the States again, he's finally got his big success going. And we were supposed to get up. I don't remember where we were going. I think we were going to Boston or something. And they couldn't get me aroused. I, I wasn't at the bus when didn't have my bags out in the hallway like you're supposed to. And, and they finally, Wayne got them to take the door off of my hotel room. And he came in and found me and threw me in a shower and cleaned me all up and, and, uh, got me dressed and got me on the bus and made sure I wasn't dead. And, uh, and to make a long story short, the funny part of the story is in the next city, I went, Oh, Oh shit. We're going to, we're going to Canada tomorrow. My my passport and my wallet were in those clothes that I puked all over that you left in the hotel. Oh. And so they called the hotel, and the hotel basically put all of that shit in a bag with all of it still covered Good. in that oh. in a FedEx bag, and it sent it to oh. them. And when I got to my, I got to the next hotel. I opened it up, and it was like, oh man, <laughs> kind of. Oh kind of fixed me up from that but yeah wayne basically came in and, and saved me from drowning well we we all we all uh not to speak out of turn here again but we all love wayne so oh, yeah. much he's this he's god he's like uh yeah he's, he's a, a he's a secret weapon isn't he yeah, he is he's a wonderful human being it's yeah wayne, unbelievable he, what he's just done for rock and roll behind the scenes and and thankless yeah, it just yeah. just be just beguiled. Yeah, it's uh, funny. He he called me the other day. I hadn't talked to him in probably four years, and he called me and he said, "Mark, I got to see you. I got to see you." I'm like, well, "What's up, Wayne?" He goes, "I got to get with you. I, I you need I need to give you that platinum record back." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "I still have the platinum record you get you signed to the Ark." back when the arc was the rehearsal room, you know, they owned that rehearsal room. Yeah. I said, no, Wayne, I, I gave you that for, for your posterity. You keep that. And he goes, well, we don't have the arc anymore. You know, and it's your platinum record. You know, I, I feel weird. about. I said, no, Wayne, I, it says to Wayne Nagel on the, you know, till <laughs> I made it out to you. <laughs> <laughs> what hey, album, what album is this? It was, it was a charm life record. The platinum charm life record. Wayne yeah. I came though. back to town and went Showing, hey, I did good. Wayne, look at me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, but he, he's looking at a gift horse, his gift horse in the mouth a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Bless like, his heart. It's because <laughs> it's because of how we described him already. He's just yeah, like he's that. just such a sweet guy. Yeah. yeah. How how long did you spend with with Charlie Sexton, and why did that uh, ultimately end? come to an end? Um, well, it's kind of weird. I was actually in his band in Austin when he got signed, and. I knew he was he 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 was going to get produced. It was a big deal. MCA was going to throw a ton of money into him. Uh, Michael Goldstone was an A&R guy. You know they had you know all this power, and 
I had heard that he was going to get Keith Forsey to produce the record. And I didn't know Keith at the time, but I'd heard these horror stories about Keith. It's the, to make, he's Billy Idol's producer. He produced all of Billy's records. Okay. okay. Uh, he did a bunch of disco stuff too, but he was a really big producer at the time. And Charlie wanted him and the record label wanted him. And so I heard he was going to come in and I, I had heard the reputation that he fired everybody and he worked with the artist and he brought his own guys in. So I just said, Charlie, why don't you go make this record? I'm going to go off. I moved to New York and played with Marshall Crenshaw for a short time and then got this other gig with an Atlantic artist named Jay Aaron. And, and Charlie went and started making the record in LA. And sure enough, Keith fired all of his band members. And I was kind of right that that was going to happen. And it's really funny how this all makes really humorous sense is that it, Keith is now one of my best friends. He was the best man at my wedding. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah. So I figured out that circle. Yeah. So I was on tour with Jay Aaron on Atlantic Records, and we played Madame Wong's in L.A., and Charlie and Wayne wanted Michael Goldstone and Keith to come out and see me play with this band because I'd been in the band before. Well, they all came out, and I guess they had already been rehearsing. They had, uh, I can't remember his last name, Jack, who was one of the Red Hot Chili Peppers guitar players for a short time. Hmm. Um, I can't remember his last name. He was playing guitar with him, and they weren't really happy about it. And so they approached me after the gig at Madame Wong's. They, all of them, the, you know, Keith Forsey, the producer I'd never met, and Michael Goldstone and Wayne and Charlie, and they're like, hey, uh, would you like to go to Europe? And I'm like, well, I'm kind of on a tour right now. And the guy's signed and everything, but I know what you, what's got going on. We're going to pay you this much money. And I went, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go yeah. to Europe. <laughs> and, and I had to go and tell the guy I was playing with that I was leaving the tour. And then, and then I found out that I wasn't just going to start playing guitar because they had the show all worked up with this other guitar player. So they had me be the Charlie's personal guitar tech. Mm. And I'm like, Oh, uh, this is kind of weird. So every gig I'd go and help Charlie with his stuff and we'd be talking and he'd say, you got the songs learned yet? And I'm like, well, I know some of them, you know, and yeah, okay. Well, after about two weeks, I had all the songs perfect the way he wanted because we'd meet after the gigs and the other guitar player had to have known what was going on. Oh, yeah. And and they just said, here's your bus ticket, basically. And, and, I, was, and I was in the band and it was pretty br brutal. I mean, that's the kind of thing it that I wanted to avoid when I didn't go with him to make the record was that brutality of the music industry. I mean, it can be severely brutal. So anyway, so go back to your thing of why it broke up. We did this big, huge, giant, massive tour. It was super successful. We went back to, uh, I went back to Texas. He went back to LA and he kept saying, you got to move to LA. You got to move to LA. Come on. You got to get out here and write with me. You got to move to LA. And I was like, man, yeah, I, I don't want to get stuck in L.A., go out to L.A., something happens. I don't want to be stuck out there. I've got a nice little thing going in Texas. I'll come out there and write. No, you got to move. You got to promise me if I move to L.A., you're going to you know, pay me a retainer or something to make it worth my while to move to L.A. I know what it's like out there. <clears throat> yes, 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 yes. You know, Tim Neese. Yeah, yeah, his manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's going to be great. So I move out there, and we start writing. And it's me and him and Keith. And Keith has his track record. I mean, he's, he wrote, Don't You Forget About Me and What a Feeling, oh, yeah. and Hot Stuff. And 
a bunch of songs with Billy Idol. I mean, that he's co-writing these songs as the producer with, he wrote Beat So Lonely with Charlie, their first wow. single. Yeah. Well, those are all great songs. Yeah, oh, he's yeah. an amazing writer. Wow. So we're all writing songs and we're working on this and it's sounding great. And David Bowie shows up at his house and writes two songs with Charlie that were unreal. I'm sitting in the room while he's got that crazy 12 string and he writes all of his songs on and his girlfriend's with him at the time. He looked just like him. It's weird. And they're up and they're writing. And of course, there's the drugs going around the house and all that stuff. But they wrote these two great songs on a little four track wow. cassette recorder. We had what was about a full albums of, of really great songs for a second record. And then and we're getting happy and Keith's happy and we're getting demos together. And one day Keith calls me and he says, you need to come up to my house. He has this big mansion in L.A. And I get up to his house and I get, we're sitting there talking and he goes, we're about to get a phone call. And I said, what? And he goes, yeah, we're going to get a phone call from Tim Neese. I go, OK, what's this all about? He says, I have a feeling we're getting fired. And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, I have a feeling we're going to get fired. And, I, and sure enough, Tim called. And the manager, and he says to Keith and I, he says, uh, Charlie's going to move back to Texas and get back to his roots. And we were going, what? He, he just did this record, the first record. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it, it was very modern. It was like modern rock, you know, 80s, you know, you know, MTV, like we were just talking big hair. I mean, you know, he was, a, you know, superstar type stuff. Right. And and I knew what his roots were, but I, we first words out of my mouth were what roots? He's he's at this point he's seventeen. I said, <laughs> yeah, seventeen. What do you what do you mean? What what roots are you talking about? Well, you know his Texas roots when he was young and he got discovered, which was this kind of punkabilly stuff that was sure. what he was playing. But she, but the A and R guys heard his voice and knew that that's what they could sell, not this. And so me and Keith were just shocked. We were like, wow. you've got all this great material. Hell, you got two songs co-written with David Bowie. I mean, there was several really great songs and they threw it all away. And sure as shit, the same thing happened. I was stuck in LA. Uh, it was horrible. Oh my God. What, what do you think? Just, just let's play devil's advocate. What do you think um, if, you know, that window wouldn't have even existed of like, I'm going to jump through this and go back to Texas and leave you guys in the dust sorry uh yeah. if that record would have come out and it would have followed through with what was happening i like how you said 80s but it's also that think about the songs that keith wrote yeah. think about the bowie influence on a couple of them oh it would have been that, huge. that that sort of uh not, not i'm not gonna say new wave too yeah. late I already said it but you, you know, know what i mean it was, it was rock new wave yes pop. Definitely pop, you know. Yeah. Pop to me means something different. I mean, pop is popular. But Iggy, I mean, but I, Iggy Bowie pop, Iggy yeah. cool, this yeah, cool, cool dark, I mean, this cool darker Bowie side was right of rock. High yeah. At that time, he'd done Let's Dance. I mean, yes. he was, so anything he touched at that time was going massive, and and it was it was like it didn't make any sense to me, and I couldn't believe that Michael Goldstone of all A and R guys was going to allow this to happen. Wow. We were yeah. kind of both yeah. in shock at first. But it was a lot of it was Tim's influence and wanting. I think he saw money going out to other people instead of it all being consolidated to Charlie. Right. I think that might have been his fear, mm. and so he convinced Charlie to move back to Texas and start all over again, which is basically what he did. It was seven years before he put out a record. 
Wow. Damn it. Yeah, which which I don't know if you're aware of that, but it kind of cratered his solo career. Wow, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, the, the I think Bowie had all these new fans and had a connection to Texas at that moment. Yeah, because of uh, Stevie Ray. Dance because of Stevie Ray, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And so and so I bet uh yeah, Bowie got all these new fans from down south because right. just because Stevie played on Let's Dance. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's kind yeah. of a weird injection to Bowie's career. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I I, well, I would have loved to have seen that happen and yeah. continue on and Charlie have that you know, bigger than life global success, but don't get me wrong, Charlie and I are still really, really close. And he and he's been quite successful. I mean, he's Bob Dylan's guitar player. I mean, yeah. yeah. I don't think you can complain about a career no. where you end up being Bob Dylan's guitar player. But right. but as far as him being a solo act that was just huge on his own, he was there. The launching pad was there for him. Yeah. Uh, but for me, you know, had that also had happened i might not have played with billy idol or any other people that i got to play with because because of playing with charlie keith had this thing where we were both fired and he was like okay and like a year later he called me on the phone and he said hey idol has left steve and he's moved to la and he wants to jam don't take anything into this he just wants to jam and i can't think of anybody would have you'd have more fun with than jamming with you and i said okay what sure. year was this? What year? Just to put a spot on it. This is '88. Okay, cool. 1988. That's uh, a good time. Good time for rock and roll, right there. Yeah, yeah. And, still, and still quite, still quite good. Yeah, in, in LA, it was really happening, and so, so, you know, I got that opportunity to just go jam with him. And that's all I thought it was going to be. And <laughs> this is a great story. I love telling everybody this story. So I show up. I, I'd met him once before, but it was just in a backstage environment at a, another concert. So I didn't know Billy at all, even though Keith had been with me now working with Charlie and and stuff. Um, so I show up at the rehearsal or the jam session, and I have like a Les Paul and a little Marshall combo. And I think, you know, that was, that's a good little thing, you know, no pedals, yeah. no nothing. Just let's go jam, you know, put a plug guitar in. Well, I walk into Leeds, and this is a big, huge rehearsal facility, and there's Phil Susan from Ozzy Osbourne's band yeah. with like five stacks of Ampeg SDTs. Yeah. And there's Myron Grummacher from Pat Benatar's band with this double bass drum kit on a riser with all these cymbals. And there's roadies running around all over the place. And I walk in with a Les Paul and a little Marshall <laughs> Combo, and I'm like, uh, Can you mic this well, thing up? Place. Can you mic this thing up, please? Can you mic this thing up? Yeah. I put it on the stage over there on the on this side. You know, I mean, I'll never forget that image of looking at the stage and there's like this little bitty amp and all this other gear. Yeah, but and when you have riding on his entourage on his motorcycle. But but when you have full full backline and you were just told it was like a little get together. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's oh, like yeah. one one of these things is not like the other <laughs> <laughs> <a> moment. <laughs> Oh, that's so great! Billy comes in. They knew all of his songs too. So mm. Phil and Matt and Phil and Myron had learned all of his songs, and so Billy comes in and he goes, "Well, hey, what do you want to do?" And they they spout off, "Let's do Rebel Yell," and they start counting into it. I go, "Hold it! Wait, wait! I'm sorry, Billy, but I didn't learn any of your songs. I I just thought we were gonna jam." And he turns to me and he goes, "Fucking great, mate! I'm sick of playing those fucking songs. You know any who?" And I went, yeah. And he goes, how about my generation? You know that? I go, yeah. So I started going, gang, 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 gang. And he goes, launched into it. And those guys are now following us. And, oh. and it was like that for the rest of the 
two and a half hours that he and I ended up knowing all the same old song. You saved the shit. You uh, saved it. Yeah. So he had a great time. They, everybody wow. kind of had a good time. Me and him had a really good time. And I thought that was it. And I thought, okay, great. And I took off and they've gotten their, all their fancy cars and all that shit, you know. I was pretty struggling at this time because I'd been fired from Charlie's band, yeah. you know, and I'm living in LA. I'm not going to go back to Texas with my tail between my legs. So I'm doing anything I can to survive. And, and a couple of weeks later go by and I get a phone call from Billy. He just calls me up direct and he says, I haven't stopped thinking about you playing with me at that jam session. I don't even want to hear any other guitar players. You want to make a record with me? That's a great. Wow. And I God, went, what a great moment. I said, you bet. And we made Fuck. Charm Life, which yeah. I'm really proud of that record. Fuck yeah. 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 You should be, man. Yeah. Now, Charmed Life, uh, the big single off of that was uh, Cradle of Love. Yep. And uh, oddly enough, I, once when we booked you on this podcast, it was crazy. We confirmed that you were going to be on the podcast. And two or three days later, I'm at the grocery store. <laughs> and that song comes over the uh, over the PA system in the grocery store. Oh, yeah. Like, wow. And I remember that video was huge. It was all over MTV. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. now I feel, I, I feel like I read and I read Billy's book. I want to say that he was recovering from a motorcycle accident at that time and couldn't do the video. So his likeness appears in the video. But oh, yeah. I think it was planned for him to actually sort of mime the song and sort of act a little bit, and it was, and he couldn't because. Do you remember all this? Is am I, I right? I know all the details of the video. Yeah. So, to, to make all these stories could be hugely long. Uh, the last day of us recording and mixing Charm Life, uh, we were we were wrapping up the last day, and he is three thirty or four in the morning, and he gets we call him and we're done. Well, I'm going to be right there. Don't, don't, don't leave. I want to come down. I want to hear the album in its completeness. And he hops on his motorcycle and he's headed down to listen to the mixes at Conway in LA. And he has this motorcycle wreck. He hits a car and flips over it and lands on a curb and smashes his leg to pieces. And so, I mean, it was hardcore. And so we knew we had to go through with the record. There was millions of dollars resting, riding on this record, you know, and, and so they got in touch with David Fincher. I don't know if you know who he is, but he had propaganda films at the time. He's made all kinds of huge movies since then, this director, but he yeah. used to do all these videos, Madonna videos and all this stuff. And he's and he got this song, Cradle of Love, and he goes, oh, I can make a great video of this. And he finds out that Billy can't do it. He goes, no problem, I got it covered. So he does the video, if you're familiar with the video, it's this young girl who goes to an apartment and wants to play the song on the guy's stereo. Above. Well, he casts Billy as an Andy Warhol painting right. on the walls, and, and and he's, you know, doing his Billy Idol, you know, with the sneer and everything, but he looks like an Andy Warhol painting. And, and they're all throughout this apartment, and so there are all these different paintings that come to life of Billy as his painting, which was brilliant. It was like, oh, wow, that's a great way to do that. Nobody knew he had a broken leg and couldn't walk. You know, I mean, it took him a long time to recover from that accident. Yeah. Ah. And and the record, the single, I think, was stalled out at like 18 or something like that. And the video came out on MTV and was the number one video forever. Yeah. And that made the song go up the charts. And we got to number two. The only reason we weren't at number one was because of that, you uh, you can't touch this. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
And when you say thing, it's not even your song. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. And that song would never go away. No, we were number one on MTV, but not on the on the Billboard charts. We we got to number two, but we couldn't get to number one. We were like, uh, but that's okay. You know, it's not that important because the MTV thing was really what was breaking things at that well, time. People, it's unfortunate that people don't understand the the uh, the texture of sushi because they want McDonald's. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah, they do. That's it. Yeah. yeah. You did uh, after Charmed Life. You did the Cyberpunk record, and right. and the single off of that was Shock to the System. Right. And if you look quickly. We can see you in that video. You're in that video. <laughs> That's the same thing with Cradle of Love. It's oh, kind yeah. of weird. I have to tell you this because it's not really how Billy feels. Billy had, and and I'm sure there's going to be Steve Steven fans out there. And, and my relationship with Steve is weird. I, I don't know the guy. I met him when he came in to the scene to rejoin Billy. And so it's kind of a strange situation. So... Billy had such a bad experience with the departure of him and Steve after Whiplash Smile that I signed a bunch of contracts that basically were like, you can't jam with anybody else. You can't play with anybody else. You know, we're, the, you're going to have limited exposure because that backfired on me the last time I did this. Hmm. And so, I, you know, hey, I just wanted the gig. Okay, look, I'm going to play with Billy Idol. He's paying me a lot of money. I said, okay, so I signed the contract. Well, was, that was kind of the way it was in the videos. And so to correct that later on, he put out some live videos of several songs that we did that had tons of me in the videos, um, which I thought was a nice way of him kind of coming back full circle because we actually are, are pretty close friends. And But that's why in both of those singles, the first single, I, you can see me, I'm in there, there's blip, blip, blips of me playing a little guitar solo here, a little guitar solo there. Yeah. Or something. But hey, right. I'm not the star, Billy was the star, you know. I he forgot. Yeah. I, I forgot. On, on Cradle of Love, you are in there briefly, but you're wearing like a hat and you might yeah. have your hair pulled back or something. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like a brief kind of black and white uh, with red background image of me on a guitar playing my, my favorite Stratocaster, but yeah. That that album, um, I, I feel like uh, cyberpunk was ahead of its time and misunderstood when it came out. Um, and, and a lot of people would say it obviously didn't tank Billy's career, but after the, the success of Rebel Yell and Whiplash Smile and Charmed Light, he's kind of on a roll. And then he puts out that record and it didn't do as well. Um, but at the time... He was sort of embracing what was then modern technology, the whole computer thing. Right, and right. I think he was one of the first artists that actually had a website and interacted with fans via email. And, and so he was kind of ahead of the game in terms of uh, how he was interacting with his audience, I guess. Right. Well, it's kind of funny. While we were on tour doing Charm Life, to get away from the just nonstop rock, you know, I mean, and we were, it, it, I didn't stop the party from Charlie Sexton through Billy Idol. I mean, those first few years that I played with Billy was, it was wild and crazy. And you can imagine, I mean, you, Billy Idol attracts a certain type of people to his shows. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it can be pretty wild. That's, that's very politically correct. I, I, like, yeah, I, I like that a lot. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a nice warning label. Yeah, yeah. And so it's pretty wild. And so 
you know, there's so much of that. And we get on the tour bus and I rode with him, me and he shared a bus. Cause that was another thing with Steve. Steve had his own bus at the end and he had his own bus and they were just, you know, golf going in different directions. He wanted me to be with him and he wanted the rest of the band members who were pretty much hired guns to be on another tour bus. And, you know, talk about the shows. And I was the musical director for the tour and we would discuss, you know, what needed to be practiced and what needed to be improved on so that really by the time we finished that term live tour, he was on fire. And how we would decompress from playing all this stuff and being so wild and crazy was we'd play dance music, like Soul to Soul and Snap and that kind of stuff that was out at that time. It was really kind of, it was, it was actually, even though it was up and uplifting and made you feel good, to us it was like decompression. And yeah. so you hear this, you know, back to life, back to reality, you know, that, that groove. And we were like, man, every night we'd talk, we'd go, you know, if you could do that and put your voice and my guitar on the top of that, we'd have something really new and people would could get into it. It'd be this driving groove. And if we wanted to take it up, we could take it up. And he'd already been used to working with machines because Keith Forsey was big into Lindrums and 808s and stuff. And we would play to that to keep the, the tempos really even on the records. Uh, Keith being a pr producer and a drummer of disco music, Donna Summers and stuff before he worked with Billy. So we were already kind of into that stuff for his Keith's influence. And the funny thing is Keith didn't make cyberpunk. We, we brought the songs to him and he kept saying, no, you need to go you need to stay over here, stay, stay, you know, stay in your lane. And Billy and I didn't want to do that, especially Billy. He was like, no, I've done that for years and years and years. I mean, you can only sing sex, drugs, rock and roll for so long before you, you got to do something. And even though some of those songs are about that, it was very, there was very political stuff going on on that record. Uh, Shock the System was all about the Rodney King beating and L.A. being on fire. We got banned from MTV because of too much violence in the video. And we were like, oh, shit, we were, it was an uphill battle the whole way. I mean, we were dealing with Brett Leonard, who was directed Lawnmower Man. He was going to make our first video, and we were doing Internet stuff. You know, we had Timothy Leary, the king of LSD, was hanging out with us and wow. talking about all this new technology, and, and, it, and we were wrapped up in it. We were way into it. it this is like 92, and the Internet was breaking. Yeah. And so when the record came out in 93, I mean, it had a, it was the first record to ever have a floppy disk and concluded with it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you can put floppy disk in your computer, your Mac computer, and it had all the lyrics and all the artwork and all the stuff. So you didn't have to have a record. You could see it all on your computer and you could interact through email with us off that, off the information that you got in your computer. This is really, really, really early on. Yeah. And, and we made the whole record on a computer. Um, and if you go back and listen to that record, it sounds awesome. I mean, the sonic quality of it. We did it in three-dimensional sound where stuff is coming from behind you due to phase. You know, I don't know if you know anything about doing surround sound, but it's all done with phase. And we worked with this guy, Robin Hancock, who had done uh, Seal. You know the band, the mm -hmm. guy Seal? He yeah. produced, worked with him as an engineer and produced with him. And, and he helped us kind of clear the Pro Tools alley out. Uh, we had the first version of two-track Pro Tools. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy times. And now that record's a kind of a cult record. It's yeah, weird. yeah. There's a lot of people that say that's the best record Billy ever made. 
that are like totally different fans. They're not as, you know, they're not as sneer, you know, rock and roll. Oh, yeah, blah, 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 stuff. They're not those fans. They're, they're the fans that grew up on cyberpunk, you know, mostly in Europe because it was huge in Europe. It was, it was a, they call it a bomb in America because it sold 300,000 copies. Yeah. You know, so now if you sold 300,000 copies, people would be, sold well over a million copies worldwide it just didn't sell billy's usual million in america you know right yeah let me put you on the spot and uh ask you what are your thoughts on steve stevens as a guitarist oh he's a great guitar player he, yeah I, I, he's a fantastic guitar player i mean i like his flamenco stuff the stuff yeah. he does where he plays flamenco to me that's that's where he shines i mean you know, look, I had to play off his parts, so that's why I asked. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I didn't play them note for note the way he did it. I, I tried to, and and people can go back and reference the live shows. I tried to interpret what he played, but give it how I interpreted it, what he what it was supposed to feel like, what it, what the emotional thing that he had when he recorded the songs. Because you know how it is, you can record a song in 1982. And if you're playing it in 2022, it's not going to sound emotionally the same way. I don't care if you're playing the exact same notes or not. You're it's a different not. person. You're it's a different not person. The, it's your not emotion the same is, amp. Yes. yes. Yeah. You yeah. know, I don't care if you're really into it or not. You're just not emotionally going to sound the same way. And I'm a firm believer that your emotion is what comes across in the music. You know, yeah. I could play the same 20 solos night after night after night. But I, I got get bored with that if I didn't put some kind of soul into it. And and to get back to Steve, he's an amazing technician. I mean, he can play shit I can't play. You know, I just I don't even want to go and try and play it. It's it's just really complex and soloing and stuff like that. But I did the best that I could to copy what he did and try and put my interpretation to it. Yeah, sure. yeah. I uh, I would I would think that, you know, Billy in y'all's meeting at your jam session where you had the little little 212 and everyone else had like acdc's back back yeah. back yeah. line yeah uh, uh oh yeah cabinet stack three high and you got a little 212 looking yeah, for the yeah. wind up that's key. fucking yeah, that yeah. is like a cartoon that's awesome no, it was God. like a cartoon oh know, my until God. we started playing and then it, we just he well, and i just kind of got lost at the front of the stage you know? yeah that's what i was gonna say you know that little part of your your story is very very attractive uh to me and obviously to 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 billy and and the like the let's just play some who let's just fuck shit up yeah, let's right. let's don't do your set let's play so and then him calling you there there's something to that um right kind of energy well that's how like, la woman ended up on the record oh on, on charm life because, because you were jamming it that was one of the songs that we jammed on. He yeah. said, well, let's play some Doors. And I love the Doors. I'm a huge Far Doors out. Even though it's, as a guitar player, you wouldn't think that, okay, you know, uh, Robbie Krieger, don't get me wrong, he, he was perfect for that band. He's but if a you're, wicked if you wanna, guitar player. If you're an He's 80s a... guitar player playing rock and roll, you're not sure. necessarily going to be playing Robbie Krieger licks, you know. Right. You'd be idolizing, you know, you know, Eddie Van Halen or something like that. But Krieger they, is underrated, and you oh, know yeah. that. Oh, yeah, and so I love the Doors. So we're, like, jamming on that. And he's like, well, that's a great interpretation of what he's doing. He said, that's really heavy. I've never played that song that heavy. And I was like, really? That's how I think it should sound. I, I, you know, 
And he kept that in his head. And one day we were in their studio working on Charm Life. And he goes, let's get loose. Let's get loose. Mark, play that thing you did on L.A. Woman that time we jammed. And it, I was like, okay. And it, it, it happened in two takes. That wow. version was on the record. Wow. And it, it's a trip because he's in there. We were actually in in a mixing mode, mixing some songs. And then we were going to overdub another couple of things. So he put the band in there. And we recorded straight on a two-track tape, which, you know, back then that's what you did. You know, recorded on two-inch. Two-inch, not two-track. Two-inch tape with yeah. all the tracks. Yeah. And we get through the song, and he goes, wait, that was great. Do it one more time. And so we were like, okay. So we do it one more time, and he comes in, and he's already chopped the two-inch tape. Not the two-track tape, the two-inch tape at the bridge. And he put the first take to the second take at wow. the bridge. And that's what we used on the record live. That's the wow. tape. Yeah. The wasn't only thing that, I did was overdub one one little guitar part at the what, end. Wasn't that a uh, released as a single? It was released. It was the second that, single on that record. Amazing. Yeah. See, there that's was a great kind of, video of it. It was really popular too. Okay, yeah. then I'm not. I'm not out of my mind. I thought that that got a lot of lip service and some yeah, yeah. and some airplay. And, and, and that's the thing. I mean, we did a lot of that with Billy. We would goof off a lot, and you know. Um, you know, look, hey, you're back to Steve. He's been with him for, you know, he was with him for, you know, 15 years before I was with him. I was with him for seven years. Uh, and then now Steve's been back with him. And, you know, it could be a security type thing. You know, they've, they've yeah. known each other for so long. And, you know, they've, you know, they're still out there doing it. You know, they're yeah. still playing Rebel yeah. Yell and Eyes Without a Face and Flesh for Fantasy. And they're doing Cradle of Love. And, well those cool. songs those songs are fucking great yeah they sure are so, yeah they're classics yeah. yeah what was the i mean there's got to be just a, a million uh memories but w when was the first time with billy idol where you either walked out on stage and went oh my god this is like i can't believe this is happening or or the decadence was just so extravagant or w when was it like okay. I can cover both of those with one story. All right, do okay. it. Okay. So we have not toured yet. We're just, the record's done. It's in the can. And we were all riding motorcycles together. This was like a big thing to do in California. We'd buy yourself a Harley and ride around the you know Pacific Coast Highway and beautiful California and riding along the beach coast and all that coastline and seeing all that crap. Well, we get invited by the Hells Angels to go to this biker rally called Visalia Biker Rally. And it's in Visalia, California. It's just kind of south of L.A. And we're, we, the, you know, Billy had a, always had a little bit of an entourage with him wherever he went. So he and I and Keith, the producer, and Phil Susan, who was, he started the record. He didn't finish the record, but he was buddy still. He's with us, and we're all headed down to this biker rally. When we get down there, and uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, who's the president of the Hales Angels. He's got the... Hey, you know, thing in his voice. Um, the guy that just passed away. Yeah, he just passed away. Yeah, he came to us. He, him, the Hell's Angels guys come up, and it's kind of an intimidating thing. And they go, "You're going to play." It's not. Wow. Will you play, or would you mind seeing what we have over here? Maybe you'd like to play on it, or no, it's you're going to play. It was that forceful, and we were like, oh. And they're all standing around him, all these guys and their colors and everything. And we're like, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll play. So we, we ride our, get escorted on our bikes over to this area where there's all these people. I mean, probably 
5,000 people, bikers and their girls, really. Wow. And and this there's a flatbed truck, and it's got like this little bitty PA system on it. Guy's name is Ralph Ralph Barger. They call yes. him Sonny. They call yeah, him Sonny Barger. Burger, Sonny Berger. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His name has actually his name has actually been mentioned more than once on this show. By the oh, way, oh yeah, so, he, yeah, he's a big music fan. Don't get me wrong; yeah. it was just kind of a forceful thing. So he's anyway. making you play. Oh yeah, yeah. So and he wanted us to play. It was like, hey, you're here, you know, you're Billy Idol, you should play, you know. So, so Free I guess it was like a country band setup or something. It was like oh, this clear. Wow. I'll never forget this clear blue plat. You know, the clear blue Vista like drum set, but it had yeah. so much tape and and paper and and stuff on the heads. That Keith, when he sat down, it was like tut 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 tut. Every every drum sounded exactly like, tut, tut 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 tut. The cymbals were real dead. Tink tink. Tupperware. And, and 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 the bass player, he's you know feels like he's got. I think they had a Rickenbacker. He was like stoked. Oh, there's a Rickenbacker. Oh yeah. So and he plugged into a little bitty like a bass amp, and he's able to get a sound. And I look over, and there's a there's a Mesa Boogie Mark. Five, I think it's the version okay. with the little speed front. And I'm like, yeah. oh, those are great amps. Yeah. And I look over and there's a Strat. That's my favorite guitar, Stratcaster. It's like this old vintage Strat. I'm like, fuck, this is going to be great. So I take the guitar and plug it into the boogie and I'm getting my sound. We're about to launch into a song and smoke comes out of the back of the amp and the amp dies and there's no other guitar amp. And I'm like, oh shit, plug me into the PA because they're already about to launch. So they plugged the guitar cable into the PA, which had quarter inch inputs, which if you're a musician, you know what this can sound like. And it's like plank, 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 plank. Well, we do rebel yell. Plank, 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 plank. And it's all Billy, right? And he's got the crowd in the palm of his hand. And we sound like shit. I mean, we sound like fucking the worst audible thing you can imagine we hadn't even played together this yeah. was not the, his band keith wasn't his drummer phil wasn't the bass player i'm the only one who had been working with him for any time so we get through that and then he does what he usually does mark let's play some who they'll know that shit and we do a couple of things you know do you know shaking all over and a couple of things like that and he disappears and I'm like, what the fuck? And I see him, and he's down in the front in the pit, and he comes up with this girl on stage. Now, this is where it gets to the debauchery thing. He's got this girl, and of course, her tits are out because it's, you know, it's a biker rally. And don't take me wrong. I'm not being misogynistic here. I'm just telling you what happened. So, so we're playing along, and next thing I know, he's down on the stage, and he's wallowing around, and he comes up. And he's got a tampon hanging out of his mouth and blood all over his face. And he's oh. like, he takes it out and he pulls her up and he's spinning around on his hand. And he throws out the audience. And that place went absolutely berserk. Oh These bikers, you could not keep them controlled after that point. They were screaming, yelling, throwing stuff on the stage. It was insane. And that's when I knew, oh my God, this guy is a huge star. <laughs> I mean, if he's willing to do that to win over a crowd, wow. he's willing to do anything. And it's that was the case every night. He was willing to do whatever it took to make a crowd happy. Wow. 
Holy crap! <laughs> well, he, you know, even even in the raw, that's like Billy in the raw, because you guys oh, yeah. are unproduced. You blew oh, yeah. up the fucking amp. It's oh, not yeah. even the right band, and he's yeah. still on ten. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's going. He's going full blast. Holy! He saved moly. our asses from probably getting mutilated. Wow. You know, if that had gone yeah. south, if that had gone south, like it could have really easily gone south. We would have had a bunch of Hell's Angels going, uh, yeah, I think it's time to get off this fucking stage, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. but instead, it was like we were kings. And then after that, I mean, anywhere we went, we had five or six Hell's Angels escorting us anywhere we wanted to go. It was wow. crazy. Well, Sonny, you know, if Sonny says play, you're going to play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he had that voice, you know, hey, you're going to play, yeah, hey. And they were like, wow. Oh. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we'll do. We've heard a lot of uh, we've heard a lot of decadent tales on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> I think that might have just <laughs> well, yeah, well, he did it in front of people, so I can. It's I'm allowed yeah. to tell you. Yeah, it's on the oh, record, I'm, right? I'm yeah. sure that it's. Yeah. I'm sure there that was it's a written. huge crowd there, so yeah, they all saw. It. I'm yeah. sure that it's in yeah. autobiographies <laughs> form somewhere. Yeah, it's not in his book. Funny enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder I'm, why. Yeah, there's a lot of other things that are pretty, pretty risque and stuff that are in that book. But that yeah. particular moment, he decided to leave out. Wow, this could be a first, a, a public yeah. first. And uh, just for our listeners, we don't condone this kind of behavior. But <laughs> God damn it, it's a kick-ass rock and roll story. Man. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty rock and roll. Yeah. So uh, again, with Billy Idol, um, so much like my question about Charlie. So why did that come to an end? Oh, Probably a lot of different reasons. Um, like I said, I'm still close to Billy. We still talk. I mean, just as recent as uh, four years ago, he asked me to come on my birthday and play with him in Vegas. It just didn't work out. Oh. Um, but um, we had done the cyberpunk record, and you know, we were still, you know, being bad boys, of course. And we had been asked to go do stadiums with Bon Jovi. And for two wow. reasons, one, like you were saying, people in America didn't know what to think of cyberpunk, even though it still sold a few hundred thousand copies. It wasn't his big success. We had no MTV support because they had banned the video. So we were able to go to Europe and play stadiums. His management company at least thought this. We were gonna, you're gonna go and open for Bon Jovi in stadiums and you're, you're, the crowd that gets cyberpunk is gonna see you and we, and we started working on a tour for Cyberpunk. And Billy, that's the period of time where you had the dreadlocks and yeah. Steven Sprouse, who's who just recently passed away not too long ago, designed all the clothing and all the looks. And <clears throat> we had this elaborate stage set up with big screens and all this kind of crazy crap that we were gonna do with cameras and all this stuff. And so we went over to Europe and found out that no, you're not going to be able to do all that on stage. You're going to open the show for Bon Jovi in the daytime. Mm. And <clears throat> that rubbed Billy the wrong way because he hadn't opened for somebody in a really long time. Yeah. And even though he was going to be doing stadiums, which he couldn't do on his own, Bon Jovi also needed us to kind of fill out those stadiums because Billy had a European success with Cyberpunk. But we weren't allowed to do our cyberpunk show nor play at night. And so Billy proceeded to use that as an excuse to get pretty hammered and pretty upset. And it, things got pretty bad at the point where they wanted to throw us off of that tour. Um, 
you know, I was finishing a couple of songs on vocals and stuff. And then we kind of got it together at Portugal where we, where we were asked to headline by the promoter. The promoter thought we were the headliners, not over, bon over Bon Jovi. Yeah, because we, we, the cyberpunk record was massive there. Like, wow. it was weird. Shock to the System was huge in a bunch of countries in Europe at that time. And it still it gets played tons. I get great royalties off of that song from Europe. Wow. So, so they didn't know what to do with this. And we actually headlined the show without our, our big thing, just a regular light show. And, of course, it went over great, and Billy kind of recovered and thought, okay, great. And then we did that again at Milton Keynes in England, where the promoter wanted us to headline because things were kind of shifting for Billy at, in a positive momentum. And so, hi, baby. And so um, we did this show, and then we were. he decided, okay, we haven't been able to do this cyberpunk show for anybody yet. I'm going to rent out the Astoria Theater in London which is a really cool theater and it's very historic. And he wanted to get generation X back together to open the show. Wow. And I was like, Oh, this is great. Fucking a, yeah, let's get generation X together and they're going to play. And they did, they got together, they played. He came back out. We did the whole cyberpunk show. It's all been recorded. It's all, there's videotape of it all over the place. The Astoria theater, Billy Idol, the Astoria theater as Generation X reunion and us doing cyberpunk. And that night he called me and I was in the boot bus mixing the stuff, the, the multi-track for the recordings with the video with the director. And he called me into his room. He said, I'm going to end the tour. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, I'm not going to go play America. America doesn't want us. Uh, they don't get this. <clears throat> you know, it's, to come back and play a solo, you know, headline arenas in Europe, I'd have to wait another six months because we just did all these stadium shows, and I'm just going to end it. And I went, wow, that's a big decision. We got all these guys on contracts and payroll because I was the MD. I said, you know, there's a lot of people who are counting on this year-long process. He goes, I don't care. He took the bullet. He lost a lot of money, and he just ended it. And a lot of it was reviews he got all these skating reviews about that record in america and ticket sales for us to headline in america were like well we'd have to play theaters in a couple of places but we could still play arenas in the big cities but we would have to play theaters in a couple other places and he hadn't done that in a long time and he wasn't going to go backwards he just said i'm not going to do that so we got back to la and we talked for a while and we were hanging out and doing our stuff and and kind of, you know, doing our own lives, which we would do, you know, we, he would live his life and I'd live my life, but we were really close. We would ride bikes together and go to dinner together and do all kinds of stuff. Well, he called me one day and he said, have you heard the news? I said, yeah, I heard it on the radio. And he goes, what? And I said, well, that you're doing the K-Rock acoustic Christmas show with Steve. And he goes, oh, well, I'm sorry you had to hear it that way. I wanted to tell you, I'm going to do an acoustic Christmas show with Steve and we're going to play you know, some acoustic songs of the old shit. And I went, hey, man, I know what that means. Don't worry about it. It's cool. And I knew exactly what it meant. He was going to go back yeah. to playing with Steve and, and playing his old repertoire and and do that. And and I had a, actually had a dinner with the three of them, with Steve. And he, that's the first time I'd met Steve. And, <clears throat> and Steve was really nice to me at the dinner. And he was like, yeah, you know, don't tell you, you know, this is just a thing. We're just going to try right and blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, you don't have to put it that way. 
it's great. You guys are going to get back together. I know what it means. Don't, don't sugarcoat it. I know what it means. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so I let them do their thing. And, you know, I split. I went back to Texas and got my shit together and cleaned up and got off drugs and alcohol. And, and apparently that's what happened to them. But it took them, once again, just like with Charlie, it took them 10 years to put out a record after yeah. that moment. And, and I don't know if you follow Billy's career and this, I'm not saying this as a weird thing, but you know, at that point they put out, I think they put out devil's playground or something like that. I think this is the name of the record. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it didn't sell like charm life or any of those records. Um, right. So, and of course the times had changed. People weren't selling million records, you know, every single day, you know, like in the eighties and nineties, you know, you could sell, Platinum records, it seemed like a lot of people were selling platinum records. You know, the medium was really powerful. Right. So so they did that. And and at this point, it's too late to do anything else. You know, I yeah. mean, we both moved on. I played with, I did a tour in South America with Jim Cocker and did several other things. Me and Keith got together and wrote songs for the Beverly Hills Cop movies and, and did a bunch of other stuff on the outside of that. So, uh, and, you know, you were that's in- how that happened. You were in Billy's band when Faith No More was the opening act. Yep. So yep. tell me, what did you think of uh, of Faith No More? Because that the 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 contrast between Billy Idol and Faith No More, in my mind, is almost a perfect example of the changing of the guard. You know, mm-hmm. as far as the. That's yeah, funny when when we had those guys. We they that epic record which had the fish in the video and all. Yeah. That, uh, uh, you want it all, but you can't have it. Yeah, that, the real thing. That's yeah, the, the real thing. Real thing. Um, that had not come out yet, and oh. we had seen those guys, and and then their label was contacting us. We had had uh, Gene Loves Je- Jezebel on a few shows and The Cult before that, and then so Gene Loves Jezebel was doing okay, but they weren't really helping us in any way. As much as I loved that band, they were great. Um, uh, James Stevenson was in Generation X. He was in Gene Loves Jezebel. So mm-hmm. there was some connection there between uh, James and, and Billy. But, you know, we heard about Faith and More and Doug it. That singer is amazing. Uh, yeah. Mike, he's a really amazing singer. And so right when that video came out on MTV, we said, okay, great, let's put them on. And they started breaking during the Charm Life tour. So... I mean, not only was Billy already at the top of his game at that point, I mean, I kind of lucked out because right when I tried life came out, he was peaking. I mean, he was massive. I mean, with the video being number one video and everything was just all, it was like symmetry. So Faith No More came in and they brought their crowd, which dug us. I mean, they really liked our show. We, you know, and and they got our crowd too. So, because they were amazing little band to open for us. And then it's just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it lasted the whole of the United States tour. They didn't go with us to Europe or, or anywhere else, just in America. But, you know, we talk about arenas and sheds. That's all that was, you know, you know, 20,000 seaters. You know, that's all we did. Wow. And Yeah, and every show was sold out when they were on the bill. Yeah, wow. it was great. They were really great guys. That, that's got to be an interesting uh, perspective because we, we've, uh, we've had a couple guys from uh, Junkyard on the show. Uh, and, uh, you know, they famously took out the Black Crows on their first national tour. And the Black Crows started to break on that tour. And then, of course, went on to be, you know, huge in their own right. Yeah. Um, so and then, you know, there's there's stories about 
uh, Guns N' Roses going out with Aerosmith and then surpassing Aerosmith as yeah. far as ticket sales. So I'm just curious, you know, when you're the, that. <clears throat> we we have to talk about the Van Halen opening for Black Sabbath too. That yeah. <laughs> Van Halen with opening for Black Sabbath yeah. and that turned around quick, pretty quick yeah. too. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot of stories like that. Yeah, that might have been the last, like, like uh, Black Sabbath might have been the last band that Van Halen ever opened for. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I would assume so. Kind yeah. of a weird, yeah. yeah I would assume so. Yeah. Tell us tell us about Tom Jones. How the heck did that happen? Uh, well, I sent you a picture. Did you see that picture? Yeah, I, I've got it. We're <laughs> going to we're gonna use it in our montage. Or we're uh, gonna that's pass crazy. It so, it's, it was, there's this club in L.A. called the Spice Club that, that mm-hmm. was laid out for musicians. It was on Hollywood Boulevard. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist anymore, but it, they set it up for musicians, basically, because everybody at that time, Hollywood was really booming with music in the yeah. early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s. It was just everywhere you went. It was musicians and bands selling millions of records and all this stuff. And so this, somebody had this great idea of, okay, I'm going to have a club, and I'm going to put up a really nice stage with a really nice sound system, and the audience is going to be maybe 500 people. But the backstage area is bigger than the whole club. It's massive. <laughs> the backstage area has got you know circular tables with round you know bench seats and and lighting. And there's another little stage in the VIP backstage area, right? And it's all decked out with gear and stuff. And you can warm up on that stage before you go out on the stage in front of all the people that are there to see who's going to show up that night. And it was a really brilliant idea because everybody who was anybody would show up at Spice and walk in through the back door, go into the VIP area, which was massive. And there might be a thousand people in the VIP backstage area versus 500 people in the crowd. Right. I'm not kidding you. There was that many people back there. And you'd run into everybody and they'd say, hey, man, let's work up a song and go out and play it. And they had a house band that would keep music going while this was happening. And all of a sudden, a lot out on the stage would be, you know, you'd see Gene Simmons walk out to play bass with, you know, who knows who, you know, and then, then five minutes later, Anthony Kiedis would jump on stage and sing with somebody, you know, it was just a whole night long of this kind of crazy crap. Well, me and Billy are there one night and Tom Jones walks in and that's suit that you see in the picture with this white suit and a black shirt and Billy's wearing a white jacket with white fringe and white pants. They look like, evil twins or something like it was just too obvious wow so they're sitting there talking and we found out that tom jones had recorded a version of to be a lover previous in his career and we and billy had done that on whiplash smile i believe was a record that he did that version on and i knew it because we play it live and he said well, great teach it to the guys so i'd go over there i taught it to a bass player and a drummer that were there at the time i didn't even know who they were so you guys it's really easy it's four chords and we worked that up really quick. We got out on stage and we did this version of To Be a Lover that was smoking hot, where they were just trading off the singing and forgot to be a forgot to be a little, hey, 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 forgot to be. And the two of them, they were just going at it. And he had, once again, he had such a great time. That's where that picture came from. He had his photographer take a picture and send it to me, to Mark. Thanks a lot, Tom. And he contacted me and said, Hey, if you're ever in Vegas, let me know. I'd like for you to come up and play like four or five songs with me in Whoa. Vegas. Wow. Off of that jam session at the Spice Club. So later on, after I wasn't playing with Billy anymore, I went out there and did that. I did a two-week thing with him where I played like four songs. And he was brilliant. He was a sweet, sweet, sweet guy. Yeah, wow. So. <laughs> I love his That's voice, awesome. man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is yeah, great. Crazy. 
That's so I, I have a funny sort of six degrees of separation. Just by the way, I want to like hold the phone for a second. Mark, I got to say, this has been an excellent, excellent episode. Just hanging out with you, just yeah. shooting the shit with you. And you're, I keep saying I should write a book. I don't know. I think it's best no, it's, if I keep it to guys like us. Super fun. Super fun. No, here's the deal. I've been teaching at School of Rock for 16 years. Oh, wow. I didn't our know currently, that, Jake. Our currently, currently a couple shows that I'm directing, I'm, I direct an adult program. And it's funny, we're doing... Keith, you mentioned all the great songs that Keith wrote, and we're doing, uh, you know, Don't You Forget About Me in the adult program. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, we're doing, uh, I, I'm directing a show with some of the kids. It's a, it's a James Bond theme song show. Uh -huh. right. where it's a whole, like, eight, 18 songs of James Bond songs. And we're doing the old classics. Well, we're doing Thunderball. Oh, nice. So that's Tom cool. Jones. So we've got some Keith and some Tom, and yeah, and there you're you in the middle going, "Hey, you know, hey, synergy, give me a break. yeah." yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. thought it was Once good. Again, yeah, Tom Jones, what a voice, huh? Oh, yes, and he's still doing it. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, he's like wow. eighty something years old. And he's still out there singing. He just put out a, a, a three-piece rock record like four years ago, just to do it. Wow. Wow. Yeah, like well, not not rock and roll, but like, like old rock, where a guy with yeah. a stand-up bass and a and a you know you know that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, boogie woogie rock, rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, real pure rock and roll stuff, and it cool. was great. I mean, it didn't sell because it's Tom Jones doing. All his fans want to hear him talk about you know girls. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they want to hear what's new. They want to hear what's new. Pussycat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. The um, 80, 80 year old Tom Jones singing, What's new, Pussycat? That's a little oh, weird. Oh, yeah. And he can still do it. I saw oh, him not too awesome. long ago on one of these English TV shows. He was still doing it. He's still it's doing Kiss by Prince. Not yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, obviously, a, a, a very colorful career you've had, but what was the moment that you got hooked on music? Do, do you recall as a child or as a youngster? Uh, the record, the TV show, the concert, uh, the 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 Big Brothers record collection. What what was the moment where you said, "I want to do this"? Well, everybody, I think every people in my age group always point to the Beatles TV show, even though I saw that and my mother made me stay up to watch it because my mother was a music teacher. It, that didn't do it for me. I mean, it was interesting. My brother saw it. He's two years older than me and played drums his whole life, but. It, that wasn't what did it for me. And I, my mother made me take music lessons when I was young. And I was like, Ugh, I got to carry this guitar to school or oh, I got to take this saxophone to school. Ugh, you know, I didn't like it at all. But I, I had to do it because she was a music teacher. And then when I moved to the, uh, my family, moved to the Virgin Islands when I was pretty young. And there was these guys that my brother fell in with who were in their 30s when he was like 16. And they wanted him to play drums in their cover band. And he went over and started playing with him. He said, man, my brother's a better guitar player than this guy is. And I was like 15, 14 or 15. And, and I, he said, come on, Mark, come out and do this. So I went and learned some rock and roll songs. <clears throat> and, uh, and we played in these hotels. And down there, the legal age to drink and vote and everything else at that time was 16, which was really young. So I could get into the bars. Uh -oh. and so, so I played in these hotel bars and the cruise ships would come pull up and we'd load all of our gear on the, gear on the cruise ships and we'd play cover songs. And I got the bug. I mean, you know, 
when you're young and you've got a bunch of people clapping at the end of something you do, that kind of does something to you. Yeah. And so I, yeah, so I kind of kept that going and, uh, you know, I left and went to, you know, after I got out of that situation, the Virgin Islands went to Houston and, and kept going, went to music school at university of Houston and met a bunch of guys that eventually I moved to Austin with us. I got in Glover Gill and, and some other people. And we did this fusion music. We were playing fusion, Yeah, you know, which is like instrumental, you know, masturbation music, you know, you're, you're trying to, <laughs> trying to do as good as you can. Right. So and Glover, then bit, I, I haven't heard Glover Gill's name in a while. Yeah, he was in that band. We were young, young, young. This wow. was before I met Charlie. Wow! Yeah. Wow! And what a true. So it wasn't. So it wasn't really like a record or a song you heard on the radio that made you go, "Wow, what is that? That's speaking to me." No, it was mainly learning songs in that cover band wow. because I had okay. the ability from taking lessons when I was young. Do you remember any of the any of the songs that you played? Oh, we did. We, yeah, we did across between everything, everything from Blue Moon to. Uh, walk this way, you know, oh, okay. I mean, we would do everything, you know, yeah. every spectrum because the cruise ships, you'd have people, they'd give you the set list of a hundred songs yeah. that you'd have to learn a week before the, the boat landed. Wow. Yeah. And the people in, drunk on the ship would go play 27. And you'd look at the list and it might be Aerosmith or it might be, you know, it, Bennett, Tony Bennett. Right. <laughs> you know? Wow. It could, it could be anything, you know, so mind blowing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My wife keeps yelling at me. You need to tell them about the Pretenders. What do you? What's wrong with you? Tell <laughs> us. I want to hear about the Pretenders. Well, tell her. Tell her. Thank you, because now yeah. we got to hear it. Oh yeah. So, well, yeah. You guys know me. I'm Mark. My name is Mark Youngersmith. And so during this time when I was in Austin, I'll try and make this quick. So when I'm in Austin, I dated this girl named Peggy Sue, who we it didn't work out, but. We became friends. We were still friends after this. And I was playing with a guy named Stephen Doster at the time. And I was kind of, at that time, I was kind of being like a hired gun in Austin. I'd play with this band and that band and this band and that band. Hence how I got playing with Charlie Sexton. And and I was also building guitars with a guy named Ted Newman Jones. And I was working with him, designing and building guitars. And then and James Newman Scott had come to town and with the Pretenders and he wanted to see these guitars. And he came down there to the shop and he was talking to me and we hit it off great. We, we almost looked like twins. It was yeah, really wow. crazy at the I time. We that. looked so much like each other, it was crazy. So he, we, we hit it off at this meeting at this guitar place where we were, I was doing guitar. And we started hanging out and he stayed in Austin for a couple of weeks and I introduced him to my ex-girlfriend, Peggy Sue, and they fell madly in love. And Peggy Sue ended up marrying him, Peggy Sue Honeyman Scott, and they had their love, wild whirlwind love affair and anyway he he fell in love with my music that i was doing with Stephen doster and he wanted to produce it and i wow. said oh, okay yeah so he took a hiatus from the first pretenders record came back to austin started producing this record with Stephen doster that i was playing guitar on and my brother was playing drums who was in the band with me in the right yeah. yes mike and so mike's playing drums and he used to say to us in the studio i go hey Mike, Elder Smith, play, 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 and he'd say, Mark, Younger Smith, play this over here. And he'd say, Elder Smith, play that. Uh, Younger Smith, play that. And that's how he'd talk to us when we talk that. And so every time from then on out, whenever I'd go out with him, he'd call me Younger Smith. He'd go, ah, meet my friend Mark Younger Smith. And he would say that to everybody. And so it kind of stuck. 
Right. And and then for, and we we were really good friends. We, I, I mean, I'm not kidding you. We were like tight. And he was and his wife was staying with me in Austin when he died. And we got oh, the phone right. call and it was horrible. It was you know, we almost finished the record with with uh, um, working on that with Stephen Doster. And it was just, you know, it shook up all of us. It was a horrible, Oof. horrible thing. Yeah. So kind of because of him, I go into this pretty much in detail. And Peggy Sue's got a book that's coming out all about Jimmy. Oh, and, wow. uh, and so the, if you want to know more about that, you should buy her book and read about it. It's for it's, sure. It goes into depth about it. But I, I was so torn up, I just kept the name from then on out. That's so, how I let me me Clarify this for me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not following. So your, your, your name really is Mark Youngersmith, correct? It, it, my, my birth name is Mark Smith. Okay. And, and, and at that time when he was producing us, he used to say to my brother, hey, Elder Smith, play this oh, in his gotcha. English accent. The older brother gotcha. and the younger brother. And he would say to me, Youngest Smith in his English accent. Youngest Smith, Elder Smith, Youngest wow. Smith in the talkback. And he just kept doing it. We were so close everywhere we went, he would call me that. Hey, it was Mark Younger Smith, my mood mate. Because everybody wanted to talk to Jimmy. Of course, he was famous. You know? oh, so, so after he died, I, I, I kept, I, I changed my name. I kept the name. It's, it's That's my name now, Mark. That Younger. is awesome. Everybody, since that time, this is like 1981 or 82. Holy! Oh God. my God, that's yeah. awesome! Tell your and wife thanks for making you tell that story. <laughs> that's, that she's was... like, you're leaving out a really important story. Yeah, just yeah, a little a, how you got a, your name. Yeah, yeah that's, a, so, that's pretty good. Well, and, yeah, from, and, and it's from James uh, Honeyman Scott. That's, yeah, it's from which, a fucking if legend. You ask me, if there's any influence that I would say influenced me the most on guitar, it's probably him. Wow, well, you know what? You couldn't get a better influencer. The guy yeah, he taught me a lot. I mean, he really taught me a lot. It, it wasn't about solos. He used to say to me, say, he'd say, Mark, if, if you're going to fucking stop the song for a solo, it better be a really fucking good solo. <laughs> we're doing, uh, at my school, we're doing Back on the Chain Gang, by the way. So that oh, six degrees go. just went. One more time, yeah. Triple wow. six. Yeah, he so. wasn't on that song, but still. No, no, of course, right. Yeah. Yeah. Those first two records that he did, oh my God. Oh, yeah. The guitar stuff that he does is just so beautiful. I mean, yeah. powerful and beautiful. And every every emotion, that's what I like so much about him, which I kept trying to keep in my playing, was the emotion of those first two Pretenders records on, of yes. the guitar playing is just it's mind-boggling what, yeah. he, what he's doing. And he wasn't any kind of virtuoso or anything on the guitar, but he really thought about what he was going to play, what he wanted to record, what he wanted to sound like, what... And he was a huge Beach Boys fan, huge wow, Beach yeah. Boys fan. He made he was now, made an honorary Beach Boy while he was in Texas. They played in Galveston, and we all went down to Galveston, and they met him, and they were like, "Oh, we know who you are! Yeah, get up on stage!" And he knew all the Beach Boys songs, and he was like, he was happy. He was playing along to the Beach Boys songs up on in Galveston, sweating the English guy on the beach, sweating, you know, and uh, you know they're all in shorts, and he's in his leather outfit. Yeah. <laughs> the beach boys when he had the time of his life you know because he was that that was him you know he liked you know even though he came from punk rock kind of background yeah he loved that kind of stuff you know production and you know all that stuff it was great yeah. it was like a wow. cross between a really good i kind of take keep that in my mind that attitude of punk can be really powerful you know you can just have a les paul and a, and a marshall combo and no pedals and, and sound like fucking power. You know, you can sound like God with that setup. Yeah. Or you can have a little 12 string Rickenbacker plugged into a champ amp 
and it can be the most beautiful thing you've ever heard in your life, you know? Yeah. And, and he was able to do that. He kind of really preached that to me. Look, you know, you're playing guitar. It's a great instrument. You can do all these different sounds, you know? Don't, don't just stick to one thing, you know? Make sure you cover all the instruments, you know, all the various, you know, tonalities yeah. and shit, so. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Man. Wow, Mark. that was a whopper there yeah, on the end. I, I mean, guys like you are why we do this podcast. That's it, right. I mean, oh, it's, it's been one friggin' amazing story after another. Well, I enjoyed yeah. it. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I, I, next, now I'm going to have to get a backdrop and we'll do it again. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I think be, between me and Jason, we might have some extra crap we can throw on yeah, you. Yeah, there you go. I, I, I have it. I just don't have it up on the walls yet. Like I said, I'm remodeling the house. So <laughs> I got to get it up on the walls, you know? All good. Crazy. Yeah. Guys, it's been really good. Yeah, this has been this has been awesome. I I really appreciate all the time and and wow, what a bunch of great stories and amazing career. Say goodbye, Joe. Yep. Thanks so much, Mark. I we really appreciate your time. Um, You bet. You bet, guys. It was fun. Really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host Jason McMaster, signing off with our special guest today, Mark Youngersmith. Youngersmith, Youngersmith. Youngersmith, Youngersmith. On the Talk Louder podcast. Thanks, Mark. 